this killer's identity a secret because they wanted this to go away. Daniel Penny has been issuing one false statement after the next through his attorney since the very beginning. He hasn't broken silence because he hasn't been quiet. Now, if the headlines were honest, they would read, Daniel Penny confesses to killing Jordan Neely, admits his victim never even touched him. Because that's what this so-called interview was. It was a confession. He attempts to pathetically lie by omission, and he can't even get that right. Quote, I can tell you that the threats, the menacing, the terror that Jordan Neely introduced to that train has already been well documented. Again, we get an avalanche of weasel words, and you can tell that these words were fed to him by his attorneys because he makes sure not to talk about what actually happened. He never actually mentions his own behavior. He doesn't deny that he killed Mr. Neely. He doesn't deny anything. Instead, he tries to justify it, but to do so without actually saying what he's justifying. Shouldn't he have been walking the News Corp media whore through his actions step by step if he was innocent? Shouldn't he have been saying, let me tell you what happened step by step. Let me explain every minute of this video to you. For the last few weeks, his attorneys have been lying and claiming that Jordan Neely attacked people on the train. Well, notice how Daniel Penny didn't even say that word. He wouldn't dare say it. Shouldn't he have been repeating the BS about, oh, Jordan Neely was attacking people on the train? What he meant was verbally. But of course, now that people have called him out on it, he can't use that word anymore. He can't claim that he had been beaten or physically assaulted or even touched by Mr. Neely. He can't claim battery. He can't claim assault. He can't claim anything. He and his lawyers tried that talking point about attack. He, he was attacking people. They tried that. And then people pointed out, nah, mostly the black media pointed out that Mr. Neely never laid a finger on anyone. So we see that they've had to abandon that talking point because it's been exposed. The killer doesn't say anything about anyone being attacked or physically threatened on that train. If Daniel Penny was heroically saving people from this threatening, menacing, terroristic, whatever, then shouldn't he be telling us all about how Jordan Neely was beating people? That Jordan Neely pulled a knife or a gun or a brick or anything? Shouldn't he have been saying that, well, Jordan Neely was strangling people on the train. He was kicking people. He was slapping people. Shouldn't he be telling everyone how Jordan Neely was hurting people on the train? But he doesn't. Given a chance for an interview with a friendly so-called news outlet, he doesn't say anything. Instead, he just deliberately misuses words like menacing and terror. Who the hell was terrorized by a 110-pound hungry, near-emaciated man who was ranting gibberish? And if everyone was so scared, why was it that you had a number of people who jumped on Mr. Neely? If everybody was so terrorized by him, why did everybody jump on him? Seems to me Mr. Neely was the one who was being terrorized. But if Mr. Neely's alleged reign of terror on that subway was so menacing and so terrorizing and so threatening, then why didn't Daniel Penny call the police? It's not as if Jordan Neely was doing anything to stop him. Jordan Neely was simply walking back and forth. Jordan Neely hadn't attacked Daniel Penny, hadn't punched him or even laid a finger on him or anyone else on that subway train. So if Daniel Penny seriously felt that he or anyone else was endangered, then his first response should have been to call the authorities. It's not as if Jordan Neely was stopping him. Jordan Neely wasn't doing anything to prevent him from doing that. But Daniel Neely chose not to call the police. Why? Because he wasn't under threat. What Daniel Penny thought was that he saw an opportunity to get away with killing someone. But of course, Rupert Murdoch's post never challenges or even questions the lies that Penny tells. And that was the entire point. This was a press release, not an interview. 
and the rest of the white media is falling in lockstep as they've been doing for the last few weeks. They're not questioning anything that Daniel Penny has said. They're not questioning any of his statements. Here he is actually making some empty gibberish about that incident where he lynched a man on a train and the white media is not picking apart his words, not saying anything about it. They're not examining it. They're just repeating it and just moving on. They have made it a point to deliberately ignore all the facts and the video and to instead claim that his chokehold was just a headlock or that his strangling this man to death was him restraining his victim, even after the medical examiner said he strangled Jordan Neely to death. The killer also repeated another talking point from his lawyers. There are numerous witnesses from all different walks of life who have absolutely no motive to do anything other than to recount what actually happened. They are uniform in their recollection of events. Well, he's certainly right about that. Absolutely nobody disputes or disagrees that the people on that subway train told him he was killing Jordan Neely. Not one person on that train contradicts that. Not one person on that train says that that didn't happen. It was caught on video. The other people on the train were telling Daniel Penny that he had to stop strangling Jordan Neely because he was going to kill him. They could see what he was doing. They told him to stop. Nobody contradicts that. Nobody says that didn't happen. Absolutely nobody contradicts or disagrees that Jordan Neely had not hit anyone, he hadn't slapped anyone, he hadn't touched anyone, didn't lay a finger on anyone, he didn't have a weapon, and he wasn't reaching for one. Everyone is in agreement on that. Everyone is uniform in their recollection of those events. But now you got Daniel Penny trying to rewrite what happened and the white media attempting to help him. At worst, Jordan Neely was making a public nuisance, but he was no threat to anyone. The only threat on the train that day was Daniel Penny. The only menace on the train that day was Daniel Penny. The only person who harmed anyone on that train was Daniel Penny. The only one who attacked anybody on that train was Daniel Penny and his two accomplices. This pathetic puff piece by Rupert's Little Propaganda Mill is laughable, but it does show that even they know that their propaganda hasn't been able to trump the public consciousness the message of the black media has been getting through. I mean, when you got to put in your headline, I am not a white supremacist, yeah. What that means is people have been seeing what the black media has been saying. The white media thought that by not mentioning Daniel Penny's name, they were creating this void of silence. Why? They won't have anybody to actually call for punishment against. Instead, what they did was they set up a huge void that the black media has filled with the truth. So now here they are trying to counter-program. And to do it, they try to show literally every little picture of him standing next to a non-white person, but the best they could do was a trip he took to Mexico. That was before he started lynching people on the subway. And it's no accident that the main talking point that this guy got from his lawyers that he's trying to recite is that, and I'm not making this up, he actually said, the system failed us. Oh, he's blaming the system. Really? Daniel Penny cannot claim the system failed him in any way. He never attempted to call the police, despite the fact that Jordan Neely never laid a finger on him, never touched him, did absolutely nothing to prevent him from calling the police or moving to another subway car. Daniel Penny chose to stay where he was. He chose to not call the police. He chose to sneak up behind his victim. He chose to strangle Jordan Neely, and he chose to ignore the other passengers on the train who told him to stop. Jordan Neely is dead, not Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny was allowed to commit his crime, to lynch a man in open public, then go home with no charges. 
And then this animal was allowed to be on the loose for almost two weeks before public pressure forced the sniveling corrupt DA to do his job and charge this piece of trash with manslaughter, not the murder charge that he actually deserves. And then a corrupt judge gave this animal bail instead of detaining him pending a verdict, which is what he should have gotten. The system failed over and over again to punish the killer. But of course, as we, the black community, know, the system didn't fail at all. It worked exactly as it's designed. Far as Daniel Penny is concerned, the system failed to protect him from consequences. The system failed to protect him from being, I should have just been able to go home. I, uh, the system has failed me. No, it's being forced to do something it wasn't designed to do, which is to hold white supremacists accountable. Now, obviously, this cowardly killer is deflecting onto the authorities, but he's using the same talking point that the white media has been using. Ever since this lynching occurred, the so-called liberal part of the white media has been putting out a united chorus of New York's heartless policies towards the homeless is what killed Jordan Neely. This is about the homeless. This is about how New York City treats the homeless. Oh, it's legal to kill the homeless now. This is what you've been hearing from your white so-called leftist liberals. They have been doing everything they can to make sure this is not about race. Not because they don't think that this is going to be helpful to putting this animal in prison, but because they don't want to have to set that precedent. They do not want to have to continue to tear down and to go after the very white supremacy that they themselves depend on. Your white so-called liberals are showing where they've always stood against justice. The white media so-called liberals have been the main ones who blame some anonymous unspecified system for Jordan Neely's death. The city of New York didn't sneak up behind Jordan Neely. Daniel Penny did. The city of New York didn't grab Mr. Neely from behind in a stranglehold. Daniel Penny did that. The city of New York did, however, tell the killer to stop strangling Mr. Neely. Passengers on that train warned him, you're going to kill him. See, the city of New York did try to prevent the death of Jordan Neely. It was the killer, Daniel Penny, not the city of New York, who ignored the passengers' pleas to release the victim. Instead, this killer continued to strangle Mr. Neely until he was dead. The only failure was the system failing to punish Daniel Neely for his crime. But there's also something else that needs to be noted. It's dangerous for Black people to echo or to repeat these white media lies. Carolyn Neely, who is reported as Jordan Neely's aunt, has been quoted for weeks now as having said, the whole system just failed him. He fell through the cracks of the system. That's going along with that whole, well, this is an issue of homelessness. I mean, it's, it's about homeless people and how they're treated by an uncaring society. That's a lie. This is about race. I want you to understand that the white media looks for black people to say unthinking statements like that. What this aunt said, this is precisely why we as the black media have gotten to the point that we don't come running to the rescue. Because these families, in many cases, say things that undermine punishing these white supremacists. This is why we keep telling black people the importance of message discipline. Too many times when a black person is murdered, the families are more interested in getting some quickie attention and sympathy than they are with pursuing justice. Notice how well the killer's would-be rhetorical defense dovetails with what the white media has already been saying for the last few weeks, and they even use the victim's own family's words to reinforce the false narrative. Do not think for a moment that it's some sort of coincidence that the killer's lawyers have dropped their lie about Neely attacking people on the subway, and instead they've switched to this one, claiming, well, the system's to blame. But of course, neither the killer nor his shyster lawyers ever say who in the system failed. 
It is not harmless for black people to be repeating the white media's racist narratives and their talking points because they've been determined to not blame this killer for the crime he committed. The video flatly disproves every lying word that Daniel Penny said, but the white media refuses to talk about the video the same way that they refused to publish his name, even though they knew exactly who he was from the very beginning. Because for the white media, this isn't about uncovering the truth. This is about covering the truth up. If Daniel Penny really wasn't some white supremacist, then he would be the first one to say, you know what, I need to go talk to those black media guys. Yeah, the people who have been exposing me, I mean, uh, telling people that I'm a white supremacist, I need to go talk to them and argue my case there. I'm not afraid to. I'm no white supremacist. I know who I am, blah, 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 all those other little suburban talking points you hear on Fox News and other white supremacist toilets. But of course, he's not going to because he's guilty as hell and he knows it. But the white media is trying to help him out. This is their M.O., when Walter Scott was murdered by Michael Slager, we didn't hear about Slager's disciplinary record. All we heard about was Walter Scott had some child support payments. When Eric Garner was murdered, the white media didn't talk about the fact that his killer, Daniel Pentaglio, had been sued for racial profiling and police brutality before he strangled Eric Garner to death. The city of New York had to shell out $100,000 to settle those lawsuits. But you didn't hear about that, did you? When Tamir Rice was killed, we heard about toy guns, but we didn't hear about how Timothy Lohman, who murdered that child, had been fired from his previous police department job for emotional instability. And that happened when he was on the firing range. So covering up for these killers based on race is standard operating procedure for the white media. With the killer, Daniel Penny, we see the white media on the retreat, though. They've taken so many continuous L's in their defenses of the police that now they've been resorting to putting blanket embargoes on even mentioning the killer's names. We got the propaganda arm of white supremacy shook. They've taken so many L's that now they're terrified to say who their would-be champions are because we made it where dirtying up the victims doesn't work. The so-called leftist media has been arguing the killer's defense for him from the very beginning. As Dr. Noam Chomsky said, it's the most sophisticated form of propaganda when something presents itself as opposition, when in reality, it's actually support. If they're not calling it a racial killing, then they're not opposing it. If they are not going over the video constantly, reminding the public step by step how Daniel Penny sat in his chair, didn't bother to call the police, didn't bother to move. He waited until Jordan Neely's back was turned, and that's when he snuck up behind him and strangled him to death. He ignored the other passengers who were telling him, you're going to kill him. If the white media is not reporting that constantly, then they're not actually telling the truth. And they're certainly not opposed to the killing of Jordan Neely. They were in favor of it. And speaking of support for the killer, shouldn't the DA Alvin Bragg be demanding a gag order for Daniel Penny and his lawyers after this? You didn't have thousands of people in the streets of New York demanding that Donald Trump be prosecuted. Not to say that New Yorkers like him, but you didn't have the public saying, when are you going to do something about Trump? But they did do that after the lynching of Jordan Neely. And what about your black DA of Manhattan? Has he been demanding that there be a gag order put in place? Has he been saying, wait a minute here, you can't be sitting here talking to the media. We need for everybody to be quiet about this until the trial. No. After all, he did say that Donald Trump needed to be stopped from disseminating evidence about his case. The pending prosecution against Daniel Penny is, at the very least, the second most important trial that's going to be going on in the city of New York right now. It is certainly, if nothing else, the second most important prosecution that Bragg has on his docket. And what is Alvin Bragg's response when you have this killer 
who strangled a man to death, the second, at the very least, second most important prosecution that he's got on his docket. This guy gets in front of the media and says, well, I'm going to tell you why it is that I shouldn't be on trial. Does he go to the judge and say, your honor, there needs to be a gag order on Daniel Penny and his lawyers. Nobody needs to be talking about this case. Prosecutors demand gag orders on defendants in high-profile cases all the time. Alvin Bragg has done it. And with as much attention as this case has gotten, it should have been automatic. Why would the DA want to allow the killer to sit here and try to prejudice and influence the public? The jury is chosen from the public. Why does he want for Daniel Penny to be allowed to talk to the public and say whatever the hell he wants, and the DA is not even going to say boo? It's because Alvin Bragg doesn't want to win this case. He didn't even want to bring charges in the first place. He was trying to figure out, could he slither his way to some sweetheart plea deal? That's why he made the charges so low. Not because that was the most he thought he could get. He knew he could get second-degree murder. But because he made up his mind, well, uh, these white, wealthy interests in New York, who I want to bankroll my inevitable, incompetent bid for governor or for the Senate, they don't want anything done about these little white supremacist killers. When a black person is harmed, they want nothing to be done. And, well, it's all about me, you know. It's no different than Daniel Cameron out in South Carolina. It doesn't matter if you've got a Republican prosecutor or a Democrat prosecutor, even if they're black. All of them see their job as looking out for themselves and securing their own position over black people's dead bodies. That's how you get the confidence of all of these white supremacist donors. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. You want those donor dollars to flow? Just make sure they understand you will do absolutely nothing to protect a black person or anything to make sure that there are consequences for harming a black person. That's how you get the donors to open up the spigot. That's how you get them to open up their wallets. So not only is Alvin Bragg not trying to stop Daniel Penny from trying to con the public, but Alvin Bragg himself isn't going to push back or even disagree with what this killer's saying. No gag order on this one because he doesn't want one. Daniel Penny was under no threat. No one had hit him. No one had pulled a weapon on him. He waited until Mr. Neely turned his back, which is the purest evidence that he was under no threat. And then he snuck up behind his victim and strangled him to death. But clearly the bastard's been feeling the heat because he's trying to deny that he's a white supremacist. Yeah, all that white media propaganda hasn't been working, ain't washing. And just like with Kyle Rittenhouse and Benny Shelby, all these other creeps, the white media is happily giving them a platform to say whatever they want, no pushback, not even basic questions. And notice the white media is not saying anything like, Daniel Penny needs to stop giving interviews. Why, everything he's saying hurts his case. Or, look at all this stuff he's saying. This is how he's making it worse for himself. Oh, man, he's just making a confession here. They're not saying, oh, look what he said. The prosecution can definitely seize on that. They're not saying anything like that. So you have the most high-profile homicide case in the country, and the white media is not interested in picking it apart or asking any questions about it. They just want to repeat whatever the killer says. Oh, well, sure, that's because there is no racism in the white media. They're not racially biased at all. This guy confessed that he killed someone. And he also confessed that he had no physical threat against him. He hadn't been touched, hadn't been assaulted, hadn't been battered. Nobody laid a finger on him. He admitted that he was under no physical threat at all, that he hadn't been attacked, and that he wasn't going to be. He admitted that he willfully killed Jordan Neely, not by accident but because he chose to get out of that seat, chose to strangle the man, ignored everyone else when they say you're going to kill him. He admitted that he didn't regret the crime that he committed. That's what the headline should be. But the white media is trying to protect him, so they're not going to do that. 
One more thing, the white media is also trying to make this cowardly killer out to be some sort of marine hero. They're still trying to push that boulder up the hill. Well, a hero is the last thing he is. They never talked to any of the soldiers that he was deployed with. Notice that? I guess they're still looking for somebody who has something complimentary to say about him. I guess they're having a hard time finding any of these buddies from the Marines who are willing to stick up for him. Though they did let the killer claim that growing up in the wake of 9-11 and the terrorist attacks in my community full of firemen, first responders, police officers, it was like I needed to serve my community in some way. Let me tell you something. This punk is 24. That means he wasn't born until 1999. He doesn't remember 9-11. He was only about two years old when that occurred. He didn't join the Marines until 2017. And he didn't join to serve the community. He joined so that he could get the GI Bill. He's in college right now. In fact, he was in the process of attending college at the time that he strangled Jordan Neely to death. This creep is no patriot. He's an opportunist at best and a common criminal at worst. But the white media is trying to put some sort of heroic or justifiable slant on what was a cold-blooded killing. Now, regardless of how you may feel about the family of Jordan Neely's remarks, we nonetheless have to speak on this lynching, because clearly the white supremacists are desperate to see this killer walk free. People used to tell us that the police who murdered black people would never be held accountable, until they were. They said that animals like the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery would never be punished, until they were. What people need to accept is that there is no final victory. Justice is not some one-and-done event where all you got to do is punish some white supremacist one time or force the system to behave according to the dictates of decency one time, and then you get to walk away and play Nintendo full-time. You don't have to do anything else. That's not how the real world works. As long as there is freedom and justice, there will always be some bottom-feeding demonic white supremacist trying to destroy it. That's the reality. They want to destroy freedom and justice because they are weak. They are corrupt. They are satanic and evil. They cannot exist in a world of freedom or justice. They need a system that spoon-feeds them every crumb of their daily bread. What's called for is for us to be in charge. But first, we have to put the bastards on the run. The reason that they're so invested in helping murderers get away with it is because the highest expression of white supremacy is the ability to kill black people with impunity. If you are able to commit the highest crime there is, to take someone's life, and to do it without any consequences, in fact, to even be praised for it. Why? That makes you supreme. That makes you godlike. That's what the white supremacists are after. That's what drives them. That's the part of their twisted little minds that white supremacy appeals to the most. In their minds, we got the power of life and death, and it's supreme. It can't be questioned, and we won't be punished for it. We can do whatever we want. There are no standards of morality or decency that we have to abide by. We just do whatever we want. They get off on that kind of thing. And the only ones who are going to stop it is us. But we got to be realistic about that responsibility. The reason that they're so invested in helping murderers walk is because this is how they assure themselves that white privilege is still intact. As we begin putting these white supremacists in prison, punishing them for their evil behavior, their privilege erodes. And these white supremacists cannot exist without white privilege. Does anyone seriously believe that a mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging inbred like Daniel Penny would have gotten into the Marines, much less been allowed to stay in the Marines, were it not for the fact that the Marines are full and overflowing with other white supremacists? Absolutely nothing about that creature says heroic, intelligent, or even manly. He's a two-bit punk. 
but under white supremacy, being a punk is protected. Under justice, however, it wouldn't be. So why am I following this case? Because we need to be keeping tabs on this one regardless. And why is that? Because the white supremacists want this. They know that the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was rigged from the jump. See, in Kenosha, Rittenhouse killed two white men and shot a third. And the same thing happened in Texas. That's why you see Greg Abbott trying to illegally engineer a pardon for a killer who murdered a white man just because he was a Black Lives Matter supporter. These white supremacists understand that there would be counteroffensive against the justice movement that we represent. They understand this is happening on a continuum. The white supremacists know that they cannot depend on juries, even white ones, to just ignore the law for them anymore. Kim Potter was convicted by an all-white jury, you'll recall. They're losing faith in their ability to get on code. White supremacy absolutely requires groupthink. It cannot exist if the white supremacists are sitting here wondering who can they depend on and who they can't. And right now, we've introduced doubt to the equation. They don't know who they can depend on anymore. And right now, they're trying to get rid of the people they think they can't depend on, or they're trying to circumvent the circumstances that make it where they actually have to play by the alleged rules that they put in place. White supremacy is not about having rules. It's about guaranteed outcomes, regardless of what the words on any legal page says. How can white supremacy continue without that essential racial solidarity? That's the threat they're actually facing. That's what the white supremacists are afraid of. We've been undermining their ability to get on code. So now they need to prove to themselves that they can still drop the racial invective and that enough white supremacists will get on code to prop up their racial misrule, at least for a few more years. When you see them giving their state mental health disability money to a Kyle Rittenhouse or a Daniel Penny, these are confidence-building exercises we see from them. This is important to them because this is not like Kyle Rittenhouse or that case down in Texas. This time you got this punk who killed a black man in cold blood. That's the reason why they're looking and going, okay, this is the next logical step. We're trying to get some momentum going. We got to win this one. We've been damaging their ability to have confidence in their racial supremacy, and they want that confidence back. Dr. John Henry Clark talked about this principle when it came to the Europeans breaking through the Moorish blockade. He specifically talked about the Battle of Sertra. As Dr. Clark explained, Sertra was a very small battle that occurred in a very small place. It wasn't even strategically located. It had very little significance at all, at least on the surface. But the Europeans' victory in that battle was very important to them because the Moors had handed the Europeans L after L for centuries to the point that the Moors were now having their mulatto offspring sitting on the thrones of Europe, the Moors had gotten their mulatto and even fully black brothers and sisters into positions of authority in Europe's monarchy and their governments. And this went on for centuries. So for the Europeans, the Battle of Sertra was the first military win they had been able to achieve in a very long time. For them, it was a confidence builder. And it gave them enough confidence where they thought they could overcome the Moors and resume their goal of global genocidal conquest, which, as we all know, is tragically what happened. The white supremacists have been allowed to run the boards, but as they've seen in recent years, when black people get on code and get focused, we can very quickly bring that noise to an end. The enemy knows the power we have. What they don't know is whether we will continue to stay focused on crushing white supremacy. We've handed the enemy a number of L's the last few years, and they've been desperately trying to get some momentum going. They can no longer protect the thugs in blue from being punished, 
So the irregular forces of white supremacy, the Kyle Rittenhouses and Daniel Pennies, are their last ditch. Well, other than these corrupt judges, that is. The white supremacists are only too aware that every defeat we've inflicted on them has fueled the next defeat, and the next, and the next. And that's why I'm talking about this. So put aside what the family of Jordan Neely says, and pay no attention to the online trolls who say that this doesn't matter. We've already shown that most of them are white supremacists who are furious that we keep beating them. These sock puppet accounts aren't fooling anyone. The white supremacists are scared. They should be. Creeps like Rittenhouse and Daniel Penny are avatars for these white supremacists. They are proxies for themselves. See, these white supremacists, 99% of them are too cowardly to even say boo to a black person. So whenever they see some cowardly killer who guns down some unarmed people or strangles an unarmed homeless man to death, so the white supremacists, they start cheering. They're like, that's a win for us. Uh, yeah, it's cowardly. Yeah, it happens to be evil and vile, but we'll take it because that's the closest to a win we've been allowed to get. See, as more and more black people have gotten on code, these little ambushes are the closest to a win that we've allowed the white supremacists to get. When animals like the murderers of Ahmad Arbery go to prison, that scares all the white supremacists because it means that all of them are now subject to going to prison. When trash like Amber Geigers and Derek Chauvin go to prison, you notice that afterwards a whole raft of these racist killer cops go to prison too. The white supremacists understand something that a lot of black people don't. Nothing happens in a vacuum under white supremacy. It is all connected. The same system of racial privilege that Michael Slager thought would protect him from punishment is also the same system that all of these white supremacists rely on as well. Whenever one of them loses their racial immunity from law, they all become subject to punishment. So that's why you see so many of these reprobates so terrified that this criminal in New York will face any sort of consequences. The white supremacists are supposed to get what they want merely as a matter of course. They're not even supposed to have to ask for it. The system is so well refined, nobody needs to be told that a white supremacist is immune from the law, especially for harming on-air personalities that you see getting caught up in that. They have a personal stake in restoring their immunity from law. Except that for the last few years, there have been some black folks who have been dedicated to making sure that they can't bet on it. We did that to the most powerful people in the society. That's the real threat that Daniel Penny was talking about. That's the real threat that the New York Post and the rest of the white media are talking about. When black people deny these white supremacists what they want, we're exercising power over them. And that drives them insane. You know what you call that? You call that justice. The white supremacists desperately want this killer to go unpunished. And the fact that they want it is more than enough reason for us to make sure they don't get it. Good day and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Loke Thies, Wilson Lanier, Jerlene Harris, Rebellious Zoe, and Salim Muhammad. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you. Tonight. I'm going to say one more time, just like I said, for that Dylan Roof motherfucker. This Mr. Penny needs to get the call that his fuckery cost him his parents, some siblings, and maybe even the grandparents. Now, you can color me bad if you want to. I really don't give any flying figs of a fuck.
other members of government. There may be a EMP or a satellite event or some problem taking place in the near future in the, the USA. The starts. <laughs> I read a story recently that I want to tell you a little bit about here. It was called When Dying Stops Being Scary, and it discussed what is actually happening to the soldiers from a Ukrainian point of view, even though we can see something very similar from a Russian side. The story started with Ukrainian soldiers. They were sitting there smoking cigarettes. They were quiet. A few cigarettes into their break, one of these soldiers, who was reported to be one of the youngest among them, broke the silence of the other individuals. He said, I don't know if I will make it. He was just a 28-year-old infantryman. His name was Roman. He hasn't yet held his newborn, who is waiting back at home. Another soldier looked at him and said, you will. Then he put out his own cigarette. It was late March in the report of the story, and three soldiers on rotation were deployed near one of the embattled regions at the front line of this Russian and Ukrainian conflict, a frontline town since 2014 during the first Crimean uh, War with Russia. It's surrounded on three sides by Russian forces at the time of writing, and it has been enduring an intense assault by both the Russian forces and counter-assaults by the Ukrainians. Earlier on the day in the report, a 47-year-old soldier who was fighting alongside this young individual went by the call sign of Dnipro in reference to his uh, hometown or a reported hometown, told reporting outlets that their battalion no longer exists. They said because half of the 500 troops were either killed in action or reported as wounded, uh, wounded in the previous three months of fighting. Hundreds of people gone, they say. They sit in shock among the decimation of what's happening in this war. Now, when you look past the news of the long-lasting defenses of the Ukrainian forces and the continual onslaught of the Russians, because they are moving in to liberate territory, so to say, there is both pessimism and optimism about what happens next. We have Russia at this moment in time saying that if Ukraine moves in defense of their country to take back Crimea or other Russian-held positions, you will see a massive increase in conflict. They say that there is trauma and horror that is just not being reported anywhere in this world. Many cite the lack of support that they get in weapons and artillery, and they say that these long rotations that they're being forced and put on test their limits. Assault tactics that are being used by Russia, human waves coming one after the other as soldiers are sent by the elite to either protect their homeland or to take other land. The scariest moment, they say, is when dying stops being scary. A Ukrainian soldier is seen in one of the reports on a tank looking at what looking over what is happening. Everyone wants to destroy the infantry. The majority of the army is made up of recent civilians. You see, if America goes to war, that's what members of your family are going to be. Recent civilians, now members of the military. At the beginning of a war between the USA and China, some will be asked to volunteer to serve. Others will be brought in under the uh, maybe predisposed condition that they have a skill that is needed by the U.S. government. 
look at volunteers such as a 49-year-old Ibor from Pearson. He says he decided to join the army to end the war. And he gathered up enough money to flee his then-occupied hometown. He says he's fighting for his family so that they can return to their home. After being so-called liberated back a couple of months ago, the region is constantly being shelled. Multiple civilians are being uh, reported as harmed during this attack. And, you know, the general population of our planet just doesn't want to see just how bad things really are. Now, more than half a year into those attacks, a 110th separate mechanized brigade infantry person who is deployed near this region says that he still struggles with, the, with leading the life of a soldier. He says, I don't want to kill people, but I also don't want to give up. I want them, he says, speaking of the Russians, to turn around and go home, but they don't want that. So that's why I try to stop them, shooting at everything that I can. You know, this is one of those wars that's going to break the minds of every participant. The same way that World War I and World War II took a lot of the souls and the spirits from our forefathers, their wives back at home, being forced to deal with the hardships of what comes after the war finally stops. Now, it is right now a time that you and I can prepare for what comes next, as we know and we see that a Chinese-Taiwan invasion is going to take place that the United States of America is standing there ready to send our brothers and sisters off to war to fight for Taiwan, just as we are sending your taxpaying money off to Ukraine to fight against Russia. They know that this is the next step, and at one point in time, you or a family member might be called off to serve, and so you have to make those decisions now on what you'll do and how you will play it out. We see reports and quotes after quote of how they wished the war would end sooner. They didn't want to do this. They're fighting for their homes. They're trying to take back the land they thought was theirs. They want to make it out alive. These are the quotes that we just see repeated over and over again as these individuals say that leadership won't even tell them what's happening. They say the less you know, the better off you'll sleep. You're not going to be told how many people are losing their lives on the front line. All you're going to be told is that if you don't do this, every woman, every child will be victimized in the coming crisis. You're going to be told that if you don't get the fatigue out of your brain and get your trigger finger ready, you're going to lose everything that you once knew and loved. They said we need to rest, but we can only rest after the war. They speak of the hardships that they're going through. We will not give up, another quote is uh, saying, even as frustration develops over issues like what the rest of the Western world is going to do to provide them the capability to continue to fight Russia at the behest of NATO and the United States of America. Another individual who goes by the call sign of Boxer due to his previous occupation says that he's fighting for what he lost, the cars, the apartments, his way of life. I was in shock, he says, when you had everything and then suddenly you have nothing. He's a native to the region. He says the Russians took everything, literally everything. And you see, that's what's going to happen. You're going to blame it. Your family is going to blame it on the Chinese. Now, remember, at the beginning of this broadcast, I told you that multiple high-level members of the U.S. government, it is reported right now, have been given satellite telephones, emergency backup communication systems. The U.S. government knows something. 
But just like these individuals on the front line are not told what is going to happen, you and I in the public realm, even maybe in the contracting, government contracting realm, even the members of our community who are active duty service people will not be told the hardships and the horrors of what comes next because they don't want anyone to know how bad it's really going to be. All we can do is expect the worst possible scenario, pray and prep for the best possible outcome. The boxer says, I don't feel like a soldier, I just have to be here. They show images of the complete, and I showed Kelly some of these, the cities there that once were just standing. Think of the biggest city in your area next to you, you know, the nearest one that you could drive to. Maybe it has a high sky rise buildings, maybe it has massive amounts of apartment complexes, you know, Target, Walmart, Walgreens, Walgreens, whatever your local Kroger or grocery store is. We see the footage, the videos, and the pictures of these cities that were standing one year ago, now completely riddled with holes, no electricity left, blood on the streets and on the sides of the buildings. This is the reality of the future because once an empire starts to fail, they will always go to war. It will always be a kill or be killed mentality. Take or have taken from you what you need. And the U.S. government has basically pulled all the punches that they can. I want you to look at this. A former U.S. commander has predicted that the Russian group that is fighting for Russia will face disaster over the next coming days or even weeks as the mercenary boss to the Wagner group claimed to have captured key city areas inside of Ukraine and that he would pull out his men recently and hand the reins over to the Russian military. This after the commander reiterated the claims that his forces had successfully captured the region, there was planning to establish so-called defensive positions, passing control onto Russian armed forces. The Ukrainian President Zelensky stressed in a Western delivered report that conflicted regions are not completely under Russian control yet. Ukrainian officials said that fighting for the city areas continues. Ukrainian troops are encircling and making advances. Now, Mark Hurtling, a former commander of U.S. ground forces in Europe, warned that as many of us had said multiple times, the leader of Wagner is not a professional soldier and neither, of his, neither are his troops. Congratulations, he says. You've put this flag in the center of the city and now you're surrounded. He added that a disaster is coming for these operatives. Washington estimates that at least 10,000 mercenaries have been killed during the past five months. The commander of Ukrainian ground forces, Colonel General Sersky, said that Ukrainian troops are advancing on the flanks of these suburbs. They say that they are tactically encircling the area. The deputy defense minister says that the troops in the area took the city in a semi-encirclement. The enemy failed to surround the entire region. They lost part of dominant heights around the city. You know, as we look at what's happening and how the troops advance and where they move and what they do to flank and how they use urban combat. You have to remember that this is a training tool for you and your family on where to stay out of, where to evade, where to avoid. If you get caught in a fight, how to basically get out of it or how to uh, take different positions to give yourself the best chance of getting out, evacuating in a safe manner. You have to watch what is happening to learn what to do if this happens to you. 
Additionally, spokespeople for the Eastern Group of Forces in the region says that the president correctly warned that the city has, in fact, been raised. The enemy is being destroyed every day by artillery and aviation strikes, and units that are situated in the area are facing extreme difficulty. The military is keeping fortifications and premises in the southwestern part of the city, and heavy fighting is underway. It appears as though some intelligence that has been garnered by the Chinese military or from the Chinese military signifies that a coming multi-directional land and sea attack will take place as China moves to retake Taiwan into its own national sovereignty. With this information, the Taiwanese military right now is staging reversing attacks against coming Chinese forces who would land simultaneously on three beaches in the Yailan County region. Experts identified a limited number of beaches around Taiwan as so-called red beaches, where an invasion by Chinese forces is going to be its easiest. The list includes three beaches near the townships of Tusheng and uh, two other regions. They were chosen for coming liberty drills. The Ministry of Defense, or National Defense, booked a drill timing of May 24th through 25th to stage simultaneous amphibious landings by Navy and Marine forces that will pose as Chinese attackers. The Army units are doing their best or will do their best to repel them, and the aim of the drills is to uncover new weaknesses, basically give America enough time to come to the aid of Taiwan. They say as the needs arise, the military will send extra forces to the beach area to repel simultaneous attacks. The drills are going to show how different units can coordinate their actions in a war setting until backup can arrive. And we talked a lot recently about how bad artificial intelligence is really getting. And I want you to see that it's already causing a loss of jobs. The telecoms giant BT is warning that it has started the first of what will be many artificial intelligence based layoffs after they claim that they are beginning to eliminate 55,000 jobs within months. Approximately one-fifth of the jobs cuts will occur in customer service. They say announced plans to replace staff with technologies, including artificial intelligence, are already in the works. They have a workforce of 130,000 people, including employees and contractors, and they say they will be directly affected by the reduction. The chief executive, Philip Jansen, acknowledged the significant changes that are going to accompany the introduction of what they call new technologies. They highlighted the potential of generative AI tools such as ChatGPT, which can perform tasks such as writing at, uh, different essays, scripts, being able to solve computer coding problems, and act in a human-like manner, they said. The CEO or the group's leader emphasizes that AI will improve the speed the quality, and the seamlessness of the service that they can offer to the rest of the population. They say it won't feel like you're dealing with robots anymore. They emphasize that the telecoms giant will maintain its multi-channel approach. It will have a network of multiple stores, but with less people, less personnel. They stated that new technologies will, of course, drive some new jobs. Those new jobs will be fewer and farther between and in fact, this announcement follows a similar move by Vodafone, which recently announced plans to cut 11,000 jobs, equivalent to one-tenth of its entire workforce, and replace them with AI-generated services. According to Janssen, BT aims to become a leaner business with a brighter future. You see, just like these stockholders loved that Target, Walmart, 
every corporation started charging more, even though they sold less product, they all love a leaner business with a brighter future. That translates into our Schleb speak as hire less people, fire more people, make more money. And they love it. The company is going to eliminate up to 55,000 jobs. The majority will take place in different areas of our world. They employ 80,000 people. They have another couple of thousand, tens of thousands that are contractors. All of them will become affected. This is getting bad and it's getting bad quick. I want you and your family to be as prepared as you can be to lose your job. Kelly and I are doing the same thing, folks. This is a all hands on deck approach. Everybody, no matter what business you're in, you will be affected. Now, an electrician will be affected less than a store operator, customer service, a restocker. I just saw a new report that they, I didn't even see anything leading up to this, but now they have new robots like the Boston Dynamic robots, but much leaner, much less uh, you know, developed, uh, not developed, but much less, I guess, hardy. They look very humanoid. They're rolling them out in the thousands this year. They say they will be doing things like stocking shelves. They will, and they look just like you and me, except maybe with a uh, mixture of iRobot inside there. A new day and age is coming. If you're an electrician, if you have a skill trade, a hairstylist, you are much more buffered than the rest of the world. Even Mike Rowe, I'm sure you know who Mike Rowe is. He uh, hosted Dirty Jobs. He has a huge, huge passion in his heart for people in skilled trade. Dirty Jobs was a show all about people who don't want to do the things that need to be done in order to make this world go round. The people who are taking the uh, you know feces out of septic tanks, the people who are working to keep the uh, bridges operating, you know, the things that most people don't want to do. He says that even every single person in those positions are going to be affected in the coming years. So what can we do to get ready? Well, we can cut back on the expenses that we have the capability of doing so. We can pay off what debts we have that are within reason, and we can work to run ourselves like these corporations want to run themselves. Leaner businesses, brighter futures. So grow as much food as you can, reduce the services that you pay for, uh, you know, don't buy a new car, even though you normally would get the old one up and running. Build a group. The more group you can have, the more likely that you'll have a skilled service trade person inside of there. You'll have an electrician, maybe a plumber, a nurse, a veterinarian tech. You'll have a, uh, you know, someone who works on vehicles. You'll have, you know, the, the shade tree mechanic. You'll have somebody who gardens a lot. You'll have these skilled trades that make our world go around. We basically each one of us needs to have these local friends and family, and you have to make sure that you can call on them. Now, they might charge, but you have to make sure you're not taking, being taken advantage of. Make sure that if they're in your group of friends and family, or survival group, or prepper group, or whatever you want to call it, make sure that in this group, you work out a deal on paper, a contract of sorts, that says that we are all working together for a better good. That means sometimes coming and sacrificing your time. Now, if you want a plumber to come sacrifice his time to unclog your toilet, 
that you need to sacrifice your own time when he needs help with a skilled trade that you have. And you might say, well, I don't have much to offer. Everyone has time. Everybody. The only person that doesn't have time are the ones who stopped breathing. And so whether you're 17 or 75, you have time to help somebody, offer somebody something. They might need help in the kitchen, in the garden, taking the garbage out, cleaning up a room, selling stuff at a garage sale. Now's the time to build those groups because other people are. That's the scary part for you. Other people are building these groups right now. So that means that the pool of available skilled trade people who are willing to work in a group setting with you and your family is lessening. You have less access to them because they're already getting into groups with friends and family. And even if they're not group oriented, they're already making connections. They might just call it, you know, acquaintances, connections. They don't have to call it a prepper group or a survival group. But your access to that pool of individuals is lessening every day. Because whether people want to understand how bad things really are, or they subconsciously just see it, they're doing what they can in the back of their own heads to get ready. Let us know down in the comments what you're doing to get ready. If you already have some of those skilled group members, what do you think a person should do if they have access to more than one skilled group member? Say somebody who, uh, you know, two electricians, two plumbers. How should they handle that type of setting inside of their group? From my family to yours, please stay safe and keep watch. This week's Full Spectrum News is brought to us by you, all of our members on Patreon. If you're interested in long-term uh, food, check out nutrientsrevival.com forward slash FSS. Use the code FSS15 for 15% off of meals that are ready to eat. If you're interested in antibiotics that are prescribed by a real doctor, they get sent to you from a real pharmacy in the mail to your house. Check out contingencymedical.com and use the code FSS10 for a discount. But most of all, do what you can to get ready because a change is coming. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you right back here tomorrow.